Welcome to another inspirational episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. Jan Randall is a musician, and as a musician, also is a composer, is an arranger, is a performer. Billions, it was four billion people was the, was the worldwide audience. And on top of that, I had to recruit a thousand voice choir. I don't think I ever had an ambition to do a world-class ceremony or anything like that. But I think I developed the skills to pursue opportunities, you know, how to network with people. Monetizing Your Creativity asks the question, what does it take to earn a living with your creative talents? I would always be very interested in the kind of music that would do the project the best service and find out what the vision is of the, of the producers and the director. We focus on the success principles common to all disciplines by interviewing producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, music composers, animators, designers, and much, much more. Learn how to create your own path to success. Let's roll. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. I'm your host, Marvin Polis, and joining me via Skype is your co-host, Fred Keating. I'm in Victoria, Canada, which happens to be on Vancouver Island, for those of you who eh, maybe aren't Canadian and don't know exactly where I am. We're off the west coast of Canada, oh, across the water from Vancouver, and back across the water, and in fact, back across the Rocky Mountains, is our co-host, Fred Keating. He happens to be, well, over there in the Canadian prairies today. Fred, tell our guests who I'm sitting with here on Vancouver Island here in Victoria. Jan Randall is a musician, and as a musician, also is a composer, is an arranger, is a performer, and has been a music producer as well. He's a multi-talented man that speaks and walks through the world of music, and he's here to chat with us today. Hi, Fred. Welcome, Jen. This is fantastic. So far, it's going very, very well. <laughs> Tell us how it all started. My mother started me on this path of music. She was a piano teacher. She taught the kids in the neighborhood. And as far back as I can remember, I wanted to climb up on the piano stool and, and play the piano that my mother was playing. I would try and push her off of it because I discovered right away it's way more fun to, to actually make the noise than to, than to sit back and listen. But I did love listening to my mother, and uh, she reports that um, she used to play Bach before I was born and just press her belly up against the piano. And I have a mystical connection with the music of Bach that uh, probably does predate my birth. <laughs> you also have a gift, some musicians have, but not many, of perfect pitch. Now, do you think that that, again, started somewhere in that early, early, even prenatal exposure to the music? I believe it does. I've deconstructed my, my process of absolute pitch. I'm convinced that it, it just has to do with remembering the notes of the piano. I, I recall the sound that each key makes. It started with middle C and my mother's first lesson that middle C was the mama bear and the high C was the baby bear, meaning, of course, low C was the papa bear. And those three notes were the notes that I would remember. I could hear them in my head before I played them on the piano and then eventually just mapped out the rest of the keys by picking out tunes, and by the time I was four, I would know what keys to press before I went to the piano. Now, Jan, clearly you were one of these kids who grew up with music because of your mother. Were you one of these kids who were told, Jan, this is great stuff, but you can't really earn a living in the music business, or did your mother take the opposite tack? 
My mother did take the opposite tack. My mother believed that I should pursue my interests, and she always encouraged music with me. She was always bragging to her friends that I could play. It was very embarrassing for me because I, I was very hard on myself. I could only compare myself to what I was hearing, and even uh, up and in, in through my teens, I, I really did not think I was very good. I could learn a couple of show-off pieces and, and pretend I was good, but I knew I was pretending. Didn't have a thorough education at all. My father was completely freaked out. <laughs> so Jan, is the gift of absolute pitch also the curse of every mistake you make being exaggerated in your own mind? I wouldn't say that. I'm not hard on myself that way. I'm hard on myself in the sense that I didn't understand the chords or the scales until I started my university education. So I came at everything backwards. I fired my mother as my teacher when I was about six because I thought I could do a better job of teaching myself. And then as other kids passed me with classical lessons in terms of their ability, I started to regret things, but I could never really relate playing to music notation. I had a really hard time with it because I was an ear player. And so I had to tackle that a lot later. So that was the real curse of it. But I came to see that that everything has a good side and a bad side. That included that if you come up as an ear player, you eventually have to tackle reading. And if you come up as a reader, you eventually need to tackle hearing. Uh, it's uh, one or the other. And it's difficult either way because we do what comes easiest to ourselves rather than, than uh, jumping into what, what's uncomfortable. And as a professional, you need to learn how to jump into your, your area of least comfort. I feel that very strongly. Well, Jan, you mentioned as a professional, and okay, I'm the marketing guy, I'm the business guy, I really care about these things. I'm really curious, how do you turn this natural talent that you have into a career? There are some people who think, well, the only way to turn music into a career is to join a band and become world famous as a, as a musician, as a vocalist perhaps, but you've taken a different direction on this, and this has been your career for decades, but you're not in the Rolling Stones. Well, uh, my mother took me to meet Tommy Banks when I was 14. I went into the Embers restaurant. He was playing there at that time. And I still couldn't read. And Tommy gave me some advice. He heard me play, said I was good enough at 14 to play the club, which I thought was <laughs> insanely generous of him. And we should say to our listeners, for those of you who don't know, Tommy Banks is a very famous Canadian jazz musician and <laughs> instrumentalist. Yes. He had a bass player at that time, David Fox. Foster, who, who you, the listeners might recognize his name as well, he was playing bass for Tommy's band. So Tommy invited me to jam the blues with David Foster. It was just before David left Edmonton to move to LA. So I jammed with David Foster and afterwards Tommy said, well, you know, you're good enough to play in the club, but you really should learn how to read music. And so to answer your question, this is a very long way around. I was told by some very <laughs> people that are respected in the business that if I wanted to do this, I, I should pursue my music education. And that's what I did. I went to the University of Alberta, I got a music degree, and I started finding teachers. But yet, a music degree doesn't guarantee you a job, so to speak. There really aren't jobs kind of in this industry, you need to find a way to earn a living. How did you do that? In the course of my degree, I, I agree with you. My perception is that degrees are really good for pursuing careers in universities. Outside of the university, I started not talking about my degree because you tend to get viewed as an academic rather than as a 
I guess a street level person and uh, a person that can can really do and that and that's not necessarily fair. There's a lot of academics who are great players and a lot of great players who are who are secretly I guess academic. I wasn't able to make it in the academic world. I was pursuing that avenue when I was um, asked to audition for Second City and this was in in the late 70s and I had been supporting my university with theater. I'd been making uh, original music for local production productions, you know, background music for plays and things, little themes, and um, making tapes. And then Second City hired me, so that happened. And Second City, of course, was SCTV with John Candy and all the gang. Yes. They moved to Edmonton with their entire production company, and I was hired to be musical director for their live theater in Edmonton. And I got to work with Catherine O'Hara as a director, Robin Duke, some some of the great comedians. Improvis- I joined the world of improvisational comedy. <laughs> So you got into the film and television business, music for film and television. Do you write jingles and soundtracks and that sort of thing? Again, you know, how how do you earn that living? Well, it's interesting. Back when I was in Second City, I was pitching my my themes to them. I was meeting people in television, but all I had was a piano and a cassette player. You might remember how hissy that was. I'd play something and all you'd hear is and I was terrible at, at being able to sell my ideas. So I didn't really get into television until about the mid 80s. And that kind of happened by accident. I had been regularly peddling my cassettes around Edmonton. (laughs) And, uh, and that was a long haul. I got into it by accident because the fellow that had been doing all of the CBC work got sick and they needed somebody to sub for him on a, on a small CBC project. And then I finally had something for my demo reel that was professional. And how do you earn the living today? From the mid 80s to uh, the next 20 years, I guess half of my living was making soundtracks and I was playing in bands still and still doing theater. It became a sort of a mashup of of all the things that I had already done. Today, I still continue those things as required, but I just keep adding on new musical jobs if I have downtime. I've taken on teaching here in Victoria and and I've been teaching at the Conservatory of Music. And of course you had the radio show, the classical radio show. Well I'd spent so much time previous to my CKUA job as a classical radio host, I'd spent so much time in my studio making original music I I was afraid I'd forgotten how to talk to people. (laughs) It had just been me and the computer and my sequencer and bringing in people from time to time. But the nice thing about being a radio host was learning how to reconnect to my voice and how to express myself in words. <laughs> that was that was a great thing about that job. And the people there are just fantastic. So I, I still uh, love my CKUA family. Tell us the story of the huge international athletic competition that you scored and how many million people around the world saw that and heard the opening ceremonies that you had pulled together and composed the music for. There again, being kind of in the footsteps of Tommy Banks, who also composed Olympic scores for the Winter Olympics in 1988. I met uh, a fellow named Kevin Cottom when he was, um, uh, he had finished a long stint as a figure skating coach at the Royal Glenora Club, and he'd worked with Kurt Browning, and I think for the 1990-something World Figure Skating Championships, I think it was the early 90s, 
they were looking for some music for the ceremonies and i had done a project with kevin it was a uh like a one-hour skating drama that turned into being like an ice ballet to the story of uh, midsummer night's dream so that ran in the fringe and that became a television production that was broadcast nationally midsummer night's ice dream and then out of that i did several other productions with this company that was formed to do skating shows so i had some experience working with uh, doing a large athletic championship ceremonial music and i also started working with you fred doing uh, award shows sort of being the the uh, hollywood pit band bringing people up and off the stage you probably remember this because we've we've been doing lots of them every year <laughs> ever since the early 90s and so that led to an opportunity in 2001 to be the musical director and composer for the uh, world championships in athletics out of edmonton and there were 200 some countries that were being brought to edmonton for this kevin was the director of that he recommended us I apply for it and I got the job. Tommy Banks was kind enough to give me some advice on how to approach it because it is a year-long project. It involved some 35,000 dancers, the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra. And it was seen by millions around the world. Billions. It was 4 billion people was the, with the worldwide audience and, and that was in August of 2001. And on top of that, I had to recruit a thousand voice choir, which... <laughs> Uh, was was a, a project just in itself. So I was responsible for composing some of the feature songs of the ceremonies and all of the parade music and supervising some of the other songs. So there were other composers involved. But it was huge. I mean, like, just the, the logistics were mind-blowing. Jan, what's the moral of the story here? For our listeners, what does this mean for their career? What's the takeaway? I don't think... I ever had an ambition to do a world-class ceremony or anything like that. But I think I developed the skills to pursue opportunities, you know, how to network with people, how to work with directors, how to provide, even though I am a composer, I would always be very interested in the kind of music that would do the project the best service and find out what the vision is of the, of the producers and the director. It might sound like the moral would be, how do you get a great big job like that? But that's not really it. It's more like, how do you uh, handle you know, a job that seems too hard or if you feel underprepared, how do you handle your own ego when you're taking direction from other people? And those were the takeaways for me, was the ability to separate my ego from the job at hand. Let's talk about that a little bit more. What are the dangers, I guess, of having the ego and how important is it really to have the humility. Very important. I admire and I read about other artists that are like rock stars. And I was reading a Donald Fagan interview where he talks about how he's never considered for a second his audience. And my career has been exactly the opposite. So it's not like uh, this is there is a formula for success or a formula for being an artist or anything. But my experience has been that most musical jobs require me to separate myself as an artist and what I want to do for myself from what the job requires. I allow myself both hats, and that's the takeaway for me. So it really is a people business at the end of the day, like all other aspects of the entertainment business. Even though as a composer, you do have some solitary time, you're still working as a team. You still have a producer. You still have clients. You still have fellow musicians that you're working with. You have people that you need to answer to and get along with. 
Well, when I started off as a freelance musician, it wasn't really a respected thing. And then as companies stopped being loyal to employees in general, people started coming to me to, for, for advice, even, you know, from other career paths and saying, you know, how do you do this out of your house? You know, how do you do, I do my own taxes, my own books, my own marketing, everything I always have. And one of the things I learned from working at the Banff Television Festival uh, with Mr. Fred Keating, <laughs> was I used to take my resume and my music examples, my website, and try and run around pitching myself. And I thought, this is how you, you, this is a great place to learn how to pitch yourself to people. And I tried that every year. I was there as a musical director for the for the ceremony. But every year I'd go there and, and, and walk away with no jobs and wonder, you know, am I failing as a networker? And then I tried something different one year, which was instead of trying to pitch myself, I started pitching my friends. And I learned that networking and people skills and, and even just feeling better, it was a win-win situation. You know, I met somebody from National Geographic and I knew somebody that was trying to sell footage from their library. I put the two of them together. And then, you know, my name got out there. It's <laughs> by way of, you know, I look good. <laughs> and people weren't avoiding me at the bar because I wasn't there to, you know, people get tired of, of people pitching themselves. And there's a certain, I don't know, narcissic quality to that that you can't avoid. So you learn how to, I guess that's, that's one of the important things. Well, Fred, we're just about coming up on time, but I think that there's a lot going on in this man's head and we need to invite ourselves back for at least one more episode, maybe more, to find out what else is going on. Jen, will you have us back, please? Sure. Great. We'll be back. Thanks for tuning in to Monetizing Your Creativity. Be sure to join us next time by subscribing to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave a review. It helps us with our ratings. You can also visit monetizingyourcreativity.com for more information about the show. And hey, be sure to tell your friends who want to understand how to monetize their creativity. <laughs>